how how has Drake's comments on you yeah. kind of changed your life in any capacity? I'm at my daughter's apartment in Philadelphia. She's in law school at Villanova. We're in the kitchen cooking. And uh, my phone, I get a text from one of the guys who's in the truck up in Toronto. And he says, you're about to blow up the Internet. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going, oh, my God, what did I say? I figured I screwed up on air like I'm panicking. And he goes, just turn on the broadcast. I happen to turn on the broadcast when Israel Gutierrez is interviewing Drake. My daughter just looks at me. She goes, oh, mom, I don't think you understand how big a star this man actually mm -hmm. is. Point. Forward. This is Andre Iguodala. This is Evan Turner. We're trying to get to the true essence of not just basketball, but life. And that means something, something, something. It is like a finger pointing away to the moon. Don't concentrate on the finger or you will miss all that heavenly glory. That level of understanding has been taken out of the game. Out of the game. Welcome to the fourth episode of season two of Point Forward. If you missed it, we had chemical engineer turned billionaire businessman turn the giving fund philanthropist Robert Smith on our last episode. Definitely go back and check that out wherever you're currently listening or watching podcasts. For today's guests, we're going back to hoops a bit as we welcome the one and only NBA analyst, true hoop head and trailblazer for women in the industry, Doris Burke. But before we get into our conversation with Doris, um, I feel like we should take a second to, you know, break down some topics from last week's episode with Robert Smith. You know, you feel me, E.T.? Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. It's a lot of gems. And this is an interesting stat. There are only a couple thousand billionaires in total in the world. Only a handful, a handful are black. And we got lucky enough to spend an hour picking uh, Mr. Smith's brain. Uh, there were a few things in particular um, that he touched on uh, that were more than enough to fill out our weekly topics conversation. So I figured, you know, let's just jump into this week's topic and, you know, kind of have a special edition about it with how our conversation was with Mr. Robert Smith. Point forward. One big thing that kind of took off on TikTok was, you know, the discussion we had about the broadband desert at HBCUs. And Mr. as Mr. Smith said, 82% of HBCUs are broadband deserts. ET, was that news to you? And, you know, like, how do you imagine being in college, especially these days, without reliable internet? It just sounds crazy. Man, it was definitely news to me. I was kind of shocked because uh, I just, I mean, it's 2022. You know what I mean? It's institutional right. higher learning. You know what you need nowadays. Even being in high school or middle school, you need certain levels of, you can't do anything without the internet. You know what I mean? Or up-to-date technology. So that kind of shocked me and it kind of, you know, really over, you know, emphasize, you know, how far behind we are in resources or like in the grand scheme of things of what we have to be grateful for, I guess, or fight for that's a norm. And, yep. um, you, you know, when we're trying to build and battle for, you know, the equality or just getting our HBCUs to the right standards, I mean, that's kind of, you know, ground level stuff where we need to start at. And that's that stuff, uh, you know, kind of cripples you and in, in, in your education and development. Correct. And and we're always talking about, you know, how do we build that pipeline? You know, because, you know, in tech, 
where it's all about disrupting and changing how we do everything in the world, how we transact financially, how we yes. communicate as humans, uh, how we treat one another in terms of healthcare. I mean, you just look all across the board and, mm -hmm. you know, how we're not in any of the decision-making processes that happen with some of the top companies in the world because we don't sit in the C-suite. And, you know, this is a part of that issue is, you know, HBCUs are set up for, you know, our people to have a higher education, but you, there's still there's still a s systematic oppression to it. You know, like it's kind of hard to change the world when you're at dollop speed, you know what I mean? And, and like, we're still struggling. And when you go and peel back a deeper layer, you go, we're, we're still in food deserts. You know, there's food deserts and there's a, now we get, I got broadband deserts and it's, it's crazy how it's dry out here on from every aspect of it for us to even attempt to be even. And, you know, you hear that phrase, um, what's the phrase they always use? You're a, a, a Affirmative action hiree. <laughs> I love, I yeah, love that yeah, phrase because yeah. I like using it on other people. And, um, it's just really interesting because they try to put that affirmative action hire on us when they have no idea of the background we came from or what we had to go through to get here. So yeah. we, yeah, I'm probably not as good as you because the system yeah. isn't set up for me to be as good as you. And, you know, you, you've been hearing a lot about it the last couple of weeks and what's going on in our world in terms of, you know, uh, who's who's talking down on who, who's supporting what. And, you know, one thing that's been mentioned, but it's been glossed over is, you know, our history as well and where we came from. And we're, we're all in a struggle together. And so that goes back to my point of, you know, just the broadband desert at HBCUs and there's a food desert in the inner cities and the communities that we concentrate the areas the most. And we go back to redlining and the funding for our schools, our public schools and, you know, public schools are becoming obsolete. Uh, yeah. I just watched the, one of the more recent episodes of Abbott Elementary where uh, they were trying to turn the school uh, into a um, not magnet school, but uh, what are they doing with all our public schools now? Yeah. Uh, a charter school. The culprit turning everything into it. Yeah, yeah. The, the culprit's like the, name was Draymond like too. <laughs> yeah, right. Draymond. <laughs> right. I don't like Draymond. She, 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 I think she pronounced it uh, Draymond. Okay. But it was interesting because now they're they, you know they're just monetizing everything and, and, and that we do or how they go about you know properly educating us properly um, you know just serving us as human beings and it's a very interesting thing and I, I was just really I was really like you saw my eyes and saw my reaction when, you know, Robert Smith said, you know, 80%, 82%, 82%, 82%, yeah. 82% yeah. of HBCUs are, are in broadband deserts, which is, sounds, sounds crazy. And you got these big companies, you got Amazon, you got Google, you got Starlink with Tesla. You got all these places that are saying, we're going to put these satellites and we're going to give internet to everybody in the entire world. And these are American companies. And yet you still got uh, yeah. institutions of higher education who can't get, you know, uh, a basic high speed internet to learn. Like it's just, it's, it's mind boggling and it, and it makes you, you know, uh, lose faith in the system, especially when you know how the system was built and who it was meant for, um, initially. I definitely agree. You said you broke it down, you chopped it up. So you murdered it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Carry me for the rest of the way. I'm tired. Another topic Mr. Smith brought up was what he was going to leave his children. He mentioned three things in particular, self-esteem, a creator's mind, and an importance of love. So, Dre, 
we're not as rich as uh, Mr. Robert Smith, but your little naps, yeah, your little knapsack, your little Bacardi rum, you know, a little bag. What, what, what you gonna leave in there for uh, little Dre and uh, baby Evan in, in London? In London, yeah, it's three of them, and it's interesting. The two older ones, I'm always telling them, like, listen. I can leave you all the money in the world, but that's really not going to bring you genuine happiness or really fulfill you as a human being. Like I've seen it and, you know, uh, he's so influential to us in our, in our community. But we had, it's like, almost like, it's crazy. We can't even really speak his name on as much. We can't like say his name and I'm not going to go back and forth of whose fault it is, but you know, money's not everything but not having it really is. Right. You know what I mean? That's, that's the and truth. so it's the truth. And so it's just like, I tell them like, listen, all right, I'll make sure you got a roof over your head, but that's it in terms of, you know, the nice things you want or uh, the things you want to acquire uh, for your personal satisfaction or for your ego. Like that's not up to me to yeah. satisfy. Like that's up to you. Like find a passion and you got to find, uh, that hard work and trait within you. Cause I think everyone has it and you just got to put mm. those teams together. Like, and it's, I know it's hard to find a passion. Like most people in this world don't Not find ever. their passion because we've, we've over monetized everything. And so people go in the fields just for money, not because they love it. But I tell them all the time, you know, you find that hard work and trait and you'll be successful. But when you find that you really should go after your passion because, you know, you just put yourself in the top. You know, I just sent that video around of uh, Bill Gurley. He gave that uh, it's kind of like a, he gave a speech or he was, you know, he spoke to a class at Texas and uh, it's on YouTube. And he was just talking about, you know, how do you become great at what you do? And it's just like you really got to immerse yourself into that. Like no one should have more knowledge than you at whatever you think your passion is. And just having that that much knowledge, like having a top one percent knowledge in the space you call your your passion will put you in a position to monetize it anyway in in, in, in these days. So you just got to look for it yourself and go get it. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think uh, I think one. Of, yeah, what are you what are you leaving behind? I, I feel like I would want to leave behind. What's the saying? You 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 don't know where you're going until you know yourself. That type of saying. And yeah. uh, I, I want uh, to leave you know my kids behind and understand that I'm right there their background and like where they come from. You know, when I was younger, yeah. I used to, uh, or even like early in my career, I used to think like, yo, I made it here cause I was a dog and I was like competitive and you know, nobody works harder than me and all this and the other. And I remember uh, hearing my grandma talk and she was just randomly telling a story. She was like, your granddad moved from Texas, went into the air force and you know was able to you know come up and you know raise five kids and you know build his dream mm-hmm. house and all this and you know work hard it's just like i i grew up so i had two kids i raised i mean i had two jobs raised raised five kids you know and the offspring turned out to be like you know obviously my mom but you know one thing that made me take uh pride in it was like knowing like damn like hard work just ain't start here like you know what i'm saying like my granddad came this far just so i can be where i'm at right now and I think like within that moment, I always felt like, uh, I don't know, I, I kind of felt like, you know, some type of like, I don't know, emotional push or boost and being like, yo, I'm strong because my people are strong. You know what I'm saying? And like, That's dope. And like one thing I want to do is 
my granddad coming from Texas and moving up. And oh, wow. I want to make sure my kids know where they come from, how hard people worked prior to. And then just keep pushing the limits, you know what I'm saying? And respecting, you mm -hmm. know, the respecting how far we took it and, you know, the sacrifices we made prior to. I think that's what, you know, I, I would want to leave my kids uh, is that so they can, you know, use that type of self-esteem and keep pushing them forward to do and move the needle e even further. Point forward. So one of the other things I want to discuss about what Robert Smith was talking about, you know, his story and his biography run deep, you know, his persistence and, you know, finding his first job, his ability to create uh, literally something out of nothing like an alchemist. You know, he did that. Yeah. Uh, his giving fun and uh, incredible philanthropy. Um, so, you know, describing him as a billionaire really isn't describing him is really doing him a yeah. disservice and something that, you know, I've been trying or we've been trying not to do, you know, still the truth is he has a massive generational wealth yeah. uh, that's beyond comprehension. So I guess that leads me to ask you, what would you do with his type of money? You know what I mean? Cause people don't understand there is a huge difference between the money we have and the money he has. Like I'm still on a budget regardless if people want to believe that or not. Like I still have to, I, I don't have no shame in looking at the tag or looking at the price. Like I'll go into a store and I'll ask how much does this cost? And I, I also do say I'm, I contradict myself and saying, if you got to look at the price, when you walk in here, you don't got no business being in here, but it's like, yeah, that's something I can afford in there. I just need to know how much it is before I buy it. Cause something might be, 20,000 and something might be a million. Yeah. I was in yeah. a store recently where it was something for 20,000 and it was something for 1.3 million. <laughs> yeah, bro, that's the truth. I, I was in a store one time, bro. I was getting a pair of pants and that bad boy said 7,000. I'm like, what? I thought was a funky ass 800. Man, put them shits back. Like, legit. I'm like, y'all selling 7,000. Like, tell somebody about that. You feel me? But What's my man's name? Sis Corsi with the uh, Clippers? You, you talking about uh, OG? What's James uh, Goldstein? James Goldstein. Goldstein. Yeah, Goldstein. I, I, I don't know. I, I hope I'm not putting his business on the street, but he was the first one, like in Balmain jeans, snakeskins. Like he he was doing this, like when we was wearing baggy clothes and we was clowning him, and now we we dressing like him. But he got on like seven thousand, ten thousand dollar pair of pants. Nah, he like he really eating. He really the man. He really. Yeah, the man. but I mean, I, I guess it's. You know, imagine yourself having that much wealth. And so, you know, what are you doing with that type of money? I know exactly what I'm doing. But at the same time, what's your approach to uh, charity and, and philanthropy? Like, how are you thinking about that? Man, if I'm that rich, bro, I think I want to go back. For one, I want to start something up with my family and make sure, like, there's a not anything crazy, but something that's like, Something like a family business that can keep going. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. keep going. That's that's if it's ideal. Then I want to do right. some cool shit like um go back to my old neighborhood and gentrify it. Like you know how, it's like what Michael Chase said. Boy, you boss. Yeah, like, <laughs> you go yeah, crazy. Yeah, like you know oh, how, that's a ball. Yeah, you know how rich you gotta be to gentrify, like turn a neighborhood your own hood. Yeah, into some shit you like. Yeah. Like, you know what I'm saying? So like I wanna gentrify my old neighborhood and then go to the richest yeah. neighborhood and then gentrify that and make that like little Evansville and like whatever <sighs> I like. Cool, like Sarah Lee cake everywhere, like Capri signs all over, like you know what I'm saying? Like that, just it, like literally ignorant shit. And then I'll for sure just keep doing like, I'll keep doing like charity. Like that goes without saying. Yeah, but I mean, I, yeah, I guess yeah, I yeah. don't really have. I guess I don't really have anything besides maybe you know, besides the obvious charity work 
and then redoing my neighborhood. I would just keep, uh, you know, trying to put the family in a position, even though that's easier said than done. But I know a lot of people, you know, get those type of, you know, funds and, and we, we search so many times for people to get hired, but then there's people around us that can somewhat do the same job. Right. On our part, if we give them the right type of influence, the right type of help. And yeah. confidence yeah. to do so. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I, yeah. that's one thing I've yeah, learned yeah, a lot yeah. where I've invested in a lot of other people. I've done a lot of stuff with funds where I'm like, all right, this person is no different than, you know, somebody in my background and or from my neighborhood that needed help. You feel me? Facts. Nah, nah. Nah, but you just get, you just told me. Yeah. Like, I always wanted to go back to Springfield. Like I knew I would go back to Springfield. I knew I would build like a, I would just build a new school or I would just buy this high school I went to. Yeah. And I'll just extend it. Yeah. Like, I'll buy all that. Like, and I'll buy like the couple blocks down. It's like a big parking lot next door by McDonald's. I would buy all that out, clear all that out and just build, like add on to it. And like, that would be the school where I'm trying to get majority of the African-American kids. Well, I wouldn't limit it to them, yeah. but I would try to get the majority of them to go to that school. And I'm just like, y'all learning from different. And like, I'm buying like, a, I'm buying like grades, preschool all the way to high school. And we going to set y'all straight. Like y'all going to learn how to code. Like, that was be my big thing um, in terms of like just, you know, like having so much money. Everyone thinks you go and doing crazy stuff like it's some boats and it's different things like that. And, you know, I like yeah. my watches, but yeah, I just want my own golf course. Yeah, that's yeah I just want my own golf course. Yeah, that's- I want my own golf course. I'm doing that. Yeah. Yeah. My, my, my man inspired me like he's been inspiring me since I was a kid. But but I do think, you know, to have real impact and like that's another thing I would add on. You know, for like my kids who, or even family members, close family members, like brothers and cousins, you know, are trying to help them out. They want jobs. If they haven't found their passion, it's like y'all working for, y'all working for the foundation. You know, yeah. like you really got to go figure out a way to help people change their lives and help people find their passions and like really yeah. make a difference. Like you're not just going to be sitting around chilling, hanging out, doing all the fun stuff. Cause you know, you know how it is. You know, we on the court doing all that work. Yeah, and no. it's a few, it's, it's a handful of NBA players make their guys work out with them. And I was like, that's how it should be. Like, bro, you need to experience this pain I'm going through. Cause all we doing is not hanging out. Cause you know, they, they got to carry their weight, but you know, that that's, that's a heavy load. We you know all the stuff that we're doing. And then when you're trying to make a real difference, like you're not just hanging out, having fun all the time, like to, to really change lives is like 24 seven. Like you really got to be on it. And so I'm yeah. making them work for the foundation. Yeah. I think also too, it's an understatement. And I, I don't know if you ever like seen it around or whatever, but um, when you put your people in power and you really like, uh, you know, instill confidence in them, like you, it sounds crazy, but you'd be really shocked what it does for them and does yeah. for their mm-hmm. self-esteem. And literally you almost seem like a, you see like a completely different person because at the end of the day, they have a goal or they're part of something that really makes them feel like, you know what I'm saying? Makes them feel whole more so than just sitting back and getting a monthly check. You feel what I'm saying? So I, I feel like right. that purpose is is everything. And from there, you know, right. like we always say, when you learn, that's where innovation come from, comes from. Any philanthropic endeavors you want to plug? Any place you know that's super dope that you just, you know, something that, you know, you, you, you always have a soft spot in your heart for them or you're always, you know, just thinking of them when, you know, that topic comes up? What me and my friends been doing, uh, actually we're restarting up in Columbus, but we stopped around the pandemic. But for the past six or seven years, we, uh, did the unsigned senior showcase. So in Chicago, remember that? So in Chicago, uh, you know, it's tons of basketball talent. Um, we'll have like 250 kids, unsigned seniors right before the deadline. 
we'll open up a gym, put teams on and, uh, you know, do, uh, we'll do scouting reports for them, get headshots, do player features. And we'll call like 200 coaches. They might, they might be D2s, D3s and legitimate. We'll let them play for two or three days in front of coaches and tons of people walk away with scholarships. So I think during that seven or eight year span, we had like, um, 7 million in, you know, scholarships and, uh, you know, academic scholarships. And, and I think obviously not everybody's going to make the NBA, but to give people like a foot into, you know, a door into college and provide a better opportunity for them than, than what it really is, is, you know, better than them hanging around, you know, the same old neighborhoods, you know, that's not really uh, providing them with much opportunity. So I, I definitely thought that was something that was pretty cool because I was able to uh, bump into kids down the line that were, uh, you know, that, that were, direct benefits from from you know what we were able to put on how about you that's super dope i'm always uh speaking towards the hidden genius project and um the hidden genius project is super dope concept essentially you know started in 2012 by uh five black male entrepreneurs technologists uh who were you know in their words, unnerved by the dramatic juxtaposition between a high unemployment of black male youth and a plethora of career opportunities within the local technology sector uh-huh. based in the Bay Area. And then they're uh, spreading out into, you know, looking at places like Detroit, Atlanta, uh, L.A. is they're setting up already up and running in L.A. Um, so they're just spreading out. Yeah. They take the kids all over the globe. They were in London a couple of years ago. Oh, My wow. wife's is on the board there. Great spot. Like they're dope. And um, like you have to go through real training and you have to learn how to code you have to build your own business to pass like one kid he built a uh shoe cleaning um company you know it's just like all all through tech so you go to the app you you show him the shoes you send it to him he cleans them up sends it back to you like super dope and he's still around and um they were recently put on i think it was lando norris yeah who's a driver for mclaren i believe uh f1 and uh, the Hidden Genius tag was put on an F1 car, which is huge. And so uh, definitely got a soft spot for them. But when they learn how to code, they actually send these black kids. It's all um, young uh, black men as well from the Oakland area. And the kid with the sneaker company, this kid was telling me about where he's from. And it's like places you don't want to be there after dark. Like like you just walking into the crib and people getting shot. It was almost like the, what was the baseball movie with Keanu Reeves? It's from Chicago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hardball. Hardball. It was like that type of neighborhood. Yeah, he was like, bro, sad. like I just seen, I see dead bodies all the time. It's like, bro, these are traumatic experiences. And um, just to seeing that, what they've been doing for the kids and him speaking from his heart, like this is a 17 year old kid telling me like how his life's been changed by something. And it's, you know, it's really hard for us to express ourselves at the age of 17. And I just realized how um, instrumental this program was for these yeah. kids. And so I always shout out the, you know, Brandon and, and, and the folks over at uh, Hidden Genius and just, you know, keep doing what y'all are doing. Yeah, that's big time, bro. That's big time. It's crazy what you got to do to get to get a kid out of a neighborhood to to give him a real opportunity to succeed. Like mm-hmm. that statement right there, what we have to do, like we have to hit, you know, one in a million chances or odds to be able to do that, to come back and save somebody to get what's normal five miles down the street. Yep. And then we yep. and then every single day people wonder why we get all numb to stuff or why we're so pro black or pro whatever, or like how we feel, because at the end of the day, it's fucked up out there. Like the fact we got to do this is a joke. And like, yeah. it's, it's sad, bro. Like a kid got to play basketball, cool. just go get an education and be part of a, 
the system that they that they built and then go oh, we gotta help other people we gotta yeah. we gotta help other people get money to get education yeah boom boom 13th amendment is just another form of what yeah. but i don't want to get too deep i don't want to get uh, too deep too i'm gonna get high <laughs> <laughs> i don't want to get in trouble i don't want to get in trouble For those of you who watched the Robert Smith interview, you know we actually went and filmed it on location in this town of Lincoln Hills, Colorado, which was an amazing experience. And we dressed up for it, which prompted a pretty lively discussion amongst our writers that gives us our one and only down for that, clown for that segment. Down for that or clown for that? Nice. We both wore suits. We were clean. And... We were clean. We wore suits for our, our interview with Mr. Robert Smith when we went to Lincoln Hills. And it's 2022. Should you dress up for the person you're meeting? Or do we feel like we have to dress up because we're meeting a person of extreme wealth? Like, I know my answer. And yeah, we agree on everything. I, don't, I, I think we just express it differently. So down for that clown for that or just how do you express it and how do i express it because i Man. both think we down for that yeah i'm down for it we both I, fly dudes naturally we both yeah. fly dudes naturally and that's what i'm saying and um you know i think atmosphere is called for the suits you know what i'm saying like you look at robert smith he had on a leather what do you have on a leather vest cashmere henley some jeans and a five thousand dollar cowboy hat. And that's what I'm saying. <laughs> I don't know how much yeah, hat was. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it was cold. <laughs> and when you get up there, I just think it's for the occasion. It was a big time thing. It's for the occasion. We're at somebody else's house. It was a big, 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 big weekend. And um, mm -hmm. I just I think it's a no brainer. I don't understand. Uh, I've never been one even for like interviews and job interviews or whatever where people just show up casually and like yo. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I think like, you know, three questions, you know, do we have to dress up to be considered successful? You know, we aren't broke by any means, but do we feel broke around him? And, you know, it's like that new money versus old money, big bank, take little bank, you know, just talking about being, you know, we're the richest in 90% of our rooms. And yeah. now we're starting to move in a direction where now we're the brokest people in the room, you know, like, like the, what does that feeling feel like? And, you know, I don't want to, like this guy keeps his, his thoughts and his, you know, sayings keep coming up because he's a genius in his own right. You know, um, and he said it, name one genius that ain't crazy. But it said, <laughs> if you ain't got more money than me, don't tell me what to do with money. But when we're around, like now we're starting to be around. Now I'm starting to be 90 percent of the environments that I'm in. I'm the brokest one in the room. And so I shut yes. up and listen. Mandatory minimums. I'm bro, I'm for it. bro. I, I think dressing up. I don't know where it got to the point where somebody was like, yo, why would I dress up for? The person above me or like you know what i mean or my superior i don't know when well what you try what you aspiring to be then that's what I'm, I'm agreeing with you like, what are you I'm aspiring saying, like, to be right when did those lines get blurred like what broke, <laughs> yeah. what broke niggas spoke loud enough to put these rules in and then we all followed it because that's basically what we're all doing is when we watch social media dudes yeah. won't listen to their homies they'll come get them yeah. when they in jail yeah. or like help them move on a weekend they'll listen to some yeah. random dude with a messed up beard and like glasses and be like, hey, bro, this is what I think. This is how you live your life and people run and go do it. It's like, no, bro, you have to be realistic to, with yourself. If you're not in a position of where you want to be at, bro, like govern yourself. It's like what Fat Joe said. Govern yourself. Like what Fat Joe said. Cal is my little brother. 
I don't have more money in Khaled. When Khaled's here, I open the door. You understand? Dre, when you sick and you like, bro, I need me something to eat or whatever, what do I do? Let me go on here. And, <laughs> yeah, and, that, and you want to know why? Because when it comes down to it, I would expect the same respect for the simple fact that it matter. Not because you do make more to me. I'm well aware of your day and what you do and what, mm-hmm. and when it comes down to it, it's like, bro, I'm free to do this. A lot of people make a lot of arguments and it's like, bro, you don't have no reason not to do this. Besides the fact right. that somebody told you you had a choice and you don't fucking have a choice. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think it's, you know, some people might say, you know, like I wore a, a sweatsuit to one of the games, but I'm always really like dressed up for the nines or whatever it called. Yeah, but you look like a million dollars. But that's what I'm saying. Even my like even my dollars. sweatsuit, I wanted to look a certain way. I yeah. want to present myself a certain way. Yeah. And it's not really me saying I have a lot of money. It's just saying this is how I want to present myself yeah. because I hold myself to not a higher standard, but just the way I think. It's a like, mandatory like, minimum. It's like Deion, De- Deion Sanders used to always say it. If you look good, you play good. Yeah, so that's, I think that's just where we're coming from. Mm-hmm. We could spend all day rehashing our conversation with Robert Smith and all the ways the topics we discuss are applicable to everyday life. And we're always down to discuss it further with y'all on social media and whatnot. But now, now it's time to get to this week's interview. So with many, many snaps, we're going to kick it to someone we admire, someone who has broken a lot of glass ceilings for women in basketball, and someone who honestly just knows the game of hoop, the Doris Burke. Just to start off, how how did you end up here today? You know, how did you end up on a podcast in a seat? What made you say yes? Well, how could I turn down two gentlemen who I think I covered in both their college careers and their NBA careers? I distinctly remember, Andre, I feel like you and I were at a game. It might have been Jimmy V or Coaches versus Cancer with Arizona. And I remember distinctly, I'm on the sideline on Dick Vitale's team. And I asked you a question, either about the team, or maybe it was an X and O question. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, this young man knows way more than he should at this age about this game and this space. And Evan, I think I had you at Ohio State. I feel like, who coached you there? Was it Thad? Yeah, Thad might have coached me. Okay, I do. you want to know why I remember your game specifically? Thad Mata in the halftime interview was dripping sweat to the point where in the middle of the interview, he apologized. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds like that. Every uh, no collar was safe. <laughs> so I couldn't like, you know, Andre, you, you reached out. How am I going to say no to two guys that I loved covering? So oh, no, we, we definitely always been a big fan of you and uh, everything you bring to the game. So definitely appreciate you showing up here today. And uh, giving us some of your time, especially during the basketball season. We were wondering, we know that you are one of the best announcers, but you were a hell of a player back at Providence College. Um, You know, during that time, you're able to receive a ton of awards. Um, You broke a couple of assist records as well. I I think you broke seven categories. And then after that, you're able to receive a lot of broadcasting awards. So could you take us in to where it all started? So I, I assume you guys both remember. Like the first time you picked up a basketball, is that true? Yes or no? Yes. Yeah. For the most. Yeah. Part. Yeah. 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 So where did it all start? Um, I mean, I remember being a kid. I was about seven years old, and I'm the last of eight kids. Um, and my 
family moved from New York to New Jersey, and we happened to move right next door to a park. And there was a basketball court, and the prior neighbors left a ball, and that was great because I'm not sure we could have afforded it at the time, me to get a brand new basketball. That's the first time I picked up the, the ball, guys. And I, I literally, I don't think I've put it down since. Um, probably too many times in my life, it's shaped too much of what I'm doing. It's like, I think about it, you know, I learn, I, it's given me confidence. It provided an education I would have never, ever been able to afford. Um, so, I mean, I assume you both still are, you know, Andre, you're still playing, you know, Evan, you played for so many years, like basketball to me just gets in your blood and it's hard to get it out. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, look at where, where basketball has, has taken us. And when you cover the game, you cover it with so much passion and, and with so much uh, reverence. You know, I also read that you feel like you have imposter syndrome sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um and so, mm. like, I'm experiencing that in the tech world, you know, trying to cross over and get acceptance in that world. So talk to us about, you know, your Sasha Fierce, you know, where you're really, you're like, I'm, I'm locked in. You know, I saw your notes. You study for every game. You know, when do you feel like you're at your best? Or what was that moment you're like, I'm really good at this? Yeah. Yeah. I definitely still feel imposter syndrome. I'm mindful, Andre, right? Mm -hmm. Um that I have to go about my job very differently than say Mark Jackson, mm -hmm. you know, Mark's still top five, I think in assists, uh, Jeff Van Gundy has coached in an NBA finals. Hubie Brown has affected more generations of basketball people on more confidence than any living human being. So I, I almost feel guys like there's, you know, when you play basketball from the time you're this high, you understand the nuance, the spacing, the just a lot of little things. Mm -hmm. But I've still never played or coached in the NBA, right? I mean, that's an impossibility, not coaching anymore. So I think, and I, I, I don't know, I don't know why I can't get past this imposter syndrome, but I know this, I'm not the only announcer to feel it. Mm -hmm. Mike Green and I talk about it all the time. Yeah. Holly Rowe and I, we function like our next contract's going to be our last with ESPN. I think bringing that edge um, to whatever field of endeavor you happen to be in is probably a good thing. But there have been moments where, listen, you guys know you step off the lines, you step outside those lines and you know, I either contributed to winning or at times was I a hindrance to what happened on the floor? Maybe mm -hmm. I struggled or my shot didn't go, whatever the case may be. Like I know when at this point I've been in it so long, if I step off the air, I'll say, wow, you know what? We had a good broadcast and that takes so many people doing their jobs. Well, guys, mm -hmm. like the people in the truck, audio, tape, camera, director, producer, so many people go into having a good telecast, but there've been little moments like, you know, Andre, I'm going to be honest with you. You saying that you guys and Evan, you saying you enjoy my telecast. You have no idea how much that helps me. Like that still is like, Oh, okay. You know, the guys I cover are okay with me. That's mm -hmm. cool. It's not to say you agree with every point of analysis I make. Nobody does. Um, but hopefully, hopefully, I think what I feel more than anything is I feel there's respect both ways. Um, I respect how hard it is to make the NBA. I respect how hard it is to sustain success. You know, if you're a coach, sometimes your livelihood is at stake every single night. And I, I love the game, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I love the game. So hopefully... Hopefully the viewer feels that with me. 
Well, before you go, I just wanted to apologize to all our uh, female listeners. You're our first woman to be on. And I, to be on. I blame hey, Andre. Oh, I was going to blame yeah. somebody else. Yeah, I we, blame we, Andre. We've been fighting with uh, our team for a while and saying, well, oh. we, we got to get to it. And then uh, I think oh. we got in the comments. Uh, we had a, a we have a, we had a lovely lady. What'd she say? There was a husband that said that he listens to us every week, but his wife refuses to listen to us until there's female guests. And I'm like, that's, uh, that's a hell of a stand, but I guess it made sense. It makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so thank you for joining with us. And yes. um, obviously, we're, we're a big fan of you. And um, we wanted to dive in. I know you're talking about the edge and what drew you to the game, but your daily motivation, considering when you first started playing, and you see yeah. the women's game is still trying to uh, find their own way and make an impact on culture. Yeah. What made you, you know, keep your motivation and believe in something as big as, you know, going off to playing for Providence College and, you know, trying to leave a, a, a mark in this game of basketball? Yeah. You know, it's funny. Um, I always call my career a happy accident um, because I'm telling you, I had it all going on in college, boys. Like bad, <laughs> bad hair. Bad skin, bad teeth, bad clothes. I had it all cooking. So naturally, I and I was painfully shy. Naturally, I go into national, you know, broadcasting. Like it's almost mind-boggling to me that this is what I do for a living. Um, so, like, I don't know that I've ever felt like um, I want to leave a mark. Literally, this is what I do every single day. And think about it. Sometimes people see me on the NBA and they're like, "Oh, well, you've always been there." No, no. I remember like my, my entry into the business was I had left coaching at Providence College and because I wanted to get married and start a family. And I did not think at the time I could be a great coach and a great mom. You know, at Providence, where I was coaching at my alma mater, you're in the gym at like 7 a.m., 8 a.m., working people out. And then you're finishing at nine o'clock with recruiting calls. Not that you're there all day. You're kind of bopping in and out, but whatever. That's a long day. Mm-hmm. So I leave coaching, and the year I leave coaching, they put Providence College women's basketball on radio. And because I played and coached in the, you know, in the program, they're like, hey, why don't you try this? So I had no listeners there. That was probably like 1990, I think. Mm-hmm. Then in 97, the biggest break for someone who wants to be, and you guys understand the difference between sideline reporting and, and, uh, and an al- analyst, mm-hmm. like 1997, the advent of the WNBA made that made me for the first time be able to make a living as a color analyst in the sport of basketball. Because I would call 35 games in the summer with the W, and I was working for Madison Square Garden and ESPN, and 35 games in the winter working for everybody. Big East, the MAC, the Atlantic 10, you name it. Um, so like it's been a 25 to 28 year sort of build, build, build. Um, I, I can't remember what my first NBA game was, how many years ago it was now. I know I spent about 10, 11 years on the finals, but this has been a journey, mm-hmm. uh, a, sometimes a slow one. And the only thing I've ever tried to do literally is focus on the game directly in front of me, do the best job possible, tell the stories of those athletes, tell the stories of those coaches, and live it every single day. And I try to tell young announcers that, like, don't get caught up in the jobs you don't have. Do the job right in front of you, and success will follow. And then talk to me about your game, because I want to 
see the parallels if they're yeah. there and how you, you know, how you're an analyst and how you yeah. are a player because, you know, naturally you're a point guard. So it makes sense. But, you know, who would you compare yourself with? What were your strengths? You know, yeah. what would you consider some of your weaknesses? And I guess yeah. lastly, how hard was it for you to transition to like completely stop playing and going into a different profession or, or was it just all basketball? So it was a joy. Yeah. So uh, I can describe my game in a nutshell. I've been describing so many games over the years. Um, my handle is exceptional. Um, <laughs> I, I, could, <laughs> I could get I could get anywhere I wanted on the floor. Pressure did not bother me. Not to say I didn't have some turnovers. We were always a running team. That's my style. Yep. I couldn't shoot a lick, gentlemen. Or you, I, you wouldn't be from New York, New Jersey, if you could. So everybody gave me a cushion. And then, you know, as you get older, that gets harder and harder. So I, I really can sympathize with guys who struggle with confidence because to me, and I, this is so stupid, but maybe you can relate. And I would love to know if like you have a moment that was bad that shapes you. It could be like between the lines or outside. So I want you both to think about this while I'm answering. Mm -hmm. But I'm a, I'm a high school freshman. It's a Christmas tournament in the next town over. Now, I could always shoot it before then. I spent my life at that park. My handle could drive tons of free throws, good, you know, good passer. But the jumper, when, when, it, when it abandoned me and it became this mental game, because it wasn't physical tools, Right. I can get it in the shooting pocket. I do shoot, you know, lower, not up here. But um, freshman year of high school, first time they pulled me up to varsity. Well, the team doesn't know me. So they start giving me a cushion saying, challenge her to shoot from the outside. And I probably went like, oh, for six. Mm. And, it sh and it shook me. And um, there were points where over the course of my career in college, I could make a 12 to 15 footer. But, but you know this, when you are really skilled at one thing and you can get there and I can score 1,500 points or whatever mm. by going to the bucket and getting fouled and taking free throws, why, why would I start taking that jump shot you know, against the good teams that expose you? So number one, do you, do you have a moment professionally where you were ever shook as a basketball player? And then did you, could you get through it? And how did you get through it? I think for me, I watch a lot of basketball. So I remember Michael Jordan saying, you know, when George Carl said Michael Jordan's just a jump shooter, you know, or when MJ, he wasn't shooting as many threes. He's like, I like to attack the basket. So Vince Carter went through the same thing where people were saying, just go to the hole and dunk it. And he's, you know, Vince Carter was an exceptional shooter. And so for me, I was always trying to expand my game, shape my game to, you know, so it has no weaknesses. But I went through a moment in my career where everyone was just saying, go to the hole and dunk it. And I'm thinking to myself, if that was the case, I would go to the hole and dunk it every single time. But you get caught with that. You know, it's kind of like it's that mental uh, handcuffs on yourself to where yes. you're thinking about pulling the trigger because, you know, you just hearing all the noise. Just go to the hole and dunk it. And I'm like, I'm six, five and three quarters without shoes. <laughs> and this is Dwight. Howard, yeah, yeah, yeah. who was four times in a row defensive player of the year, and the center was still a very 
uh, high-valued asset in the NBA. There yes. was a time where centers yeah. were the max. Now it's all guards. But centers, the defense, the defense center was like very important. Shaq was down there. I remember I tried to dunk on Shaq. He said, you try to dunk on me again, I'm punching you in the nuts. That's what I'm saying. And they were supposed to hurt you if you went into the paint. Yeah. 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 So I need to, I need to get my, my mid-range right. And, but right. now I'm overthinking it because I'm like, well, if, if I can't, and then when you get later in your career and you're not the man, you can't go 0 for 3. You, you know, can't start over uh, three. Them first two shots mean something. So you you, you got to mix in one. Yeah. <laughs> By that time out, you got to be one for two. And that's why I tell guys all the time, listen, if you got stress on you, play defense. Because yeah. I can get a steal and I can get myself a layup. And that'll get my psyche right going into the next shot. Now I'm not worrying about missing. Yeah. I, I always say that. I always say that. Like if a guy is struggling, especially if you have the physical tools to do it. And mm-hmm. there's... There's a lot of guys in the NBA. Derek Jones Jr. Sprint the floor both ways. Go dunk on somebody on a putback. You're yep. going to get six points. Maybe not that many. But see, and this, this Andre, what you said, Evan, you sitting there saying, I can't go for two. Like the viewer at home, I don't know that they know you guys feel all this. Right. Yeah. And I want them to know, just like I said, I have imposter syndrome. Just like I can suffer crises of confidence because like I'm everybody, you know, the viewer at home is like, oh, yeah, we, we can we can relate. I want them to know you guys have the same ups and downs, trials, tribulations. It's not easy. It's not easy what you guys do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Throughout your career, you know, when you're climbing to the top to this legendary, you know, career and legendary status, what do you think of, you know, a micro decision that you made that when you look back on it was bigger than ever oh my gosh i mean do i have to limit it to one you can do I two mean, three four five <laughs> six that's <laughs> whatever you want I'm there you know there's so many like um leaving coaching was not an easy thing um i hope i don't come across as arrogant here but i think i would have been a very good coach mm-hmm. um because i you know in high school and college i was that kid that though i had some skill so much of my confidence was defined by my success or failure between the lines. Again, sort of basketball, sort of being that central piece of my life. Um, but, but I did leave coaching. And that very same year, I got my break as an entry into the building. So um, that was a small decision, but a weighty decision at the time. Mm-hmm. And I... And that's probably too, that's probably not a micro decision because that's a life decision. Here's what I would say. And I say this to my two children all the time. Your life exists and your life will be nothing more than a series of small choices you make every day. And the years are going to pass really quickly. And you're either going to have put in the time every day to, you know, to work hard, to, to put time into, you know, whatever field you are choosing. You're, you're going to make a choice to work out every day or to eat healthy most days or whatever the case may be. I will say I do think life exists in a series of small choices we mm-hmm. make every single day. And I guess following up on that, we talk about suffering from success. And we know we all have these huge aspirations to be a part of the NBA in, in any capacity. Like just being at this level, you know, it's it's continuing to grow. It's a $10 billion annual industry. And there's a lot that comes with it. You know, you just spoke on it. The viewer doesn't really know what really goes through our minds or the issues that we deal with off the court. So for you, what are some things where it's like, you know, 
there's some there's there's gifts and there's curse to success. So, so what are some of the things you never would imagine would come with it that you were like, wow, like I never realized I would have to deal with this because yeah. of the success that I've that I've gotten over the years. Yeah. You know, one thing, and I've said this, and and you guys are closer to the generation where you, you know, you have lived it every single day of your lives, and that's social media. Mm-hmm. And I just just had this conversation with uh, an administrator at Providence College, and I am really thankful for colleagues like Cassidy Hubbard and Malika Andrews, who are younger than me, mm-hmm. and, and can share the perspective of this generation. Um, so one of the things that has come with success, I've covered men's college basketball as an analyst and the NBA as an analyst. and. That was at first unusual. And, and so when a viewer would tune in to me in that position, what would they do first? They do what everybody does when something is foreign or they're unaccustomed to it. They draw back from it. Mm. They question what is he or she doing in that particular spot. And there have been moments in the advent of social media where I've had some really ugly feelings kind of sent my way. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, sometimes it feels like every time I'm on a broadcast, I could be trending. And that makes me slightly uncomfortable. Um, You know, I don't like this. Believe it or not, you're going to like, I love my job. I I don't necessarily love being in the public eye. Mm. Um, That sounds ridiculous because I'm in the public eye. And my kids laugh at me when I say that. But um, I am thankful you guys that um, I had a certain amount of time and confidence and equity built up before social media became a thing Mm -hmm. because I'm not sure I could have withstood some of what came at me on, on social media. And, you know, listen, um, you go back to when I first started, I remember being an announcer in the Atlantic 10 and they were like, I'm the lead announcer for a league that's always fighting for you know, recognition nationally. And, and the guy made me their lead analyst. And, uh, you know, I just remember having a conversation with him the second year. And I said, what did your coaches say when you said you were going to put a female in that position? He goes, you really want to know that? I said, yes, I do. And he goes, well, I'm not going to tell you exactly, but I'm going to tell you what I told them. I told them she's our analyst for the year. And unless, and I don't want to hear from you until March. And if you have any objections, then you tell me then. Mm-hmm. But until then, I and John Cheney, I had a couple of unbelievable moments with this guy. But I remember he, t- he told me, uh, he called the office and he told the guy who hired me, he goes, that, that young lady you have, she's all right. And I was like, that's the greatest praise in history. I mean, John Cheney. Shoot. Remember Mark making shooting lights out and getting to the elite eight and just failing short of their final four. Um, and then another time, this is, this is sort of a funny story. I wish I could remember the word, but um, it's a second year. It's the Atlantic 10 tournament. I've called Dawn Staley's um, Atlantic 10 championship with Temple the night before. Now I'm going to Philadelphia to, to call the Atlantic 10 in the old spectrum. And I come in Mm -hmm. upstairs and I got to climb down and three people stopped me in route and said, Coach Cheney's looking for you. And the more people that stop me and say he's looking for me, my heart starts pounding. I'm thinking, "Uh uh-oh, 
So at the time I'm married, I call my husband. I'm like, oh my God, I've said or done something. It's bad. It's bad. And, uh, and he goes, well, just be proactive. Go find him. So coach is coming off a press conference. He's in like the pipe and drape area in the back of the spectrum. And I said, coach, you know, you, you looking to see me? He goes, yeah. And he pulls me behind. I wish I could remember the word. I used some word on the Dawn Staley Championship. Whatever the word was, he goes, that's not a word. You've been hanging around black people too long. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of that, how how has Drake's comments on you kind of changed your life in any capacity? Like he's a huge fan, and obviously, you know, you know, he's probably the biggest uh, musician of our time or this generation. So, kind of, how has that impacted you? Yeah. So. Number one, that last point you just made, I, I really, I can tell you exactly where I was when that night, you know, happened and, and he comes out in the, in the shirt. I'm at my daughter's apartment in Philadelphia. She's in law school at Villanova. We're in the kitchen cooking. And uh, my phone, I get a text from one of the guys who's in the truck up in Toronto. And he says, you're about to blow up the internet. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going, oh, my God, what did I say? I figured I screwed up on air. Like, I'm panicking. And he goes, just turn on the broadcast. I happen to turn on the broadcast when Israel Gutierrez is interviewing Drake. All I know is my daughter and I start screaming because I have some understanding of how popular Drake is. But the longer the night wears on, my daughter just looks at me. She goes, oh, mom, I don't think you understand how big a star this man actually Mm -hmm. is. And um, so so I'm going to say this. How has it changed? And it's it's probably a year later, literally a year later before I finally can talk to Drake about this. I'm up in Toronto and um, in, you know, kind of connect via cross court and a halftime he comes over I'm calling the game with my brain he comes over and I remember distinctly kind of like trying to pull him into me and I think this video might be online but I you know what I said to him was something along the lines of you know I know you didn't do it for this reason but I really appreciate that you expressed respect for my work because I do think it had an impact on people's acceptance of me at large and Evan and Andre, I would say the same thing about when I was sidelined, I obviously do not do that job anymore, but when I was sidelined or, and you have to interview the coach or I've got to interview you guys post game. And there is, there is a very powerful message being sent to the viewer every time there's an interaction on the court, every single time. And because there was respect shown from players to me, that too changed people's acceptance of me because I think if the viewer is at home thinking to himself, well, geez, if the best players in the world are okay with this woman, we should be too. And not that, not that maybe I should need either of those things. Mm -hmm. You should be listening to me call the game. You may not stylistically like how I call the game, but you should be able to know she either knows her content or she does not. But life is what life is. And he had a funny reaction. I don't remember exactly what he said. I remember Richard Jefferson being on his podcast and and he, he said, are you guys friends? I'm like, no, I'm not friends with Drake. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, no. He's a ve- <laughs> I'm like, he seems like an exceptionally nice person. I've conversed with him twice. Um, but no, I'm not hanging out with Drake. <laughs> <laughs> 
Are you hanging out with enough cool people as is? Um, clearly, when you're not, you know, quote unquote, not hanging out with Drake, we know you watch yeah. tons of basketball games and everything. What do you think about the yeah. season so far? What about you guys? Like, the league feels like it's in great space in terms of talent. And a, right. do you guys feel that? Well, he loves Luca and Tatum. Yeah. So, and Trey Young, I just think like these Trae young guys right now that are coming at older players. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. the fact that yeah. Jason and Jalen took out the Nets last year, like these are some great play- And then almost took out the Warriors. These are some great older, I mean, 2-1, y'all are down 2-1. And losing in and, the next game. And losing. So like long story short, those are babies. I'm saying- Ask him, ask him when I'm talking for- about the game three. All right, we and, 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 we, and we brought this up numerous times. I'm just saying people from our age group and older, I've seen them take out tons of people. So to see young kids come up yeah. and go yeah. at real life superstars and legends. Yeah. I mean, it's impressive. These, okay. these aren't easy goals, right? It Kevin takes Durant, a, Kyrie, like. Oh, 100%. Like, it's a lot of young dudes not having problems with some dudes that like I have on a high pedestal. And like last night, what we discussed on. There we go. Would you like who do you like better, Book or Clay Thompson? If they went head to head, who would win that battle? Oh man, that's a that's a great question. I know the answer. Listen, if you go back, you're gonna say D Book based on that answer. D Book in any sense, he's just a better basketball player. If we go back, yeah, those two have been going at it since D Book has gotten in the league. Yeah, I don't know if people have been watching that. And you see it time after time again. When MJ was coming up, it was Harold Miner. It was Penny Hardaway. It was Grant Hill. It was yeah. Kobe. They were always trying to find who the next yeah. MJ was. And I think you're seeing it more and more, not with just like who's the next LeBron, but like who's the next Steph. You know, there was a Trey yeah. Young. And then yeah. they, yeah. It's, fun, it's fun watching those two play against each other. Then it was like, who's the next Clay? Yeah. You know, because we're kind of changing the weight. And they're even saying like, you know, this guy could be like Draymond, you know? Yeah. Um, but in that situation, though, like, those dudes are fighting over skill. I heard D-Book called uh, Clay light skin and he got pissed. <laughs> that's what I heard. That's what I heard on the court. I was like, what? Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's so, funny. So, so that's, I think. D-Book calling him light skin. No, that's his hysterical. It's a light skin joke. Uh, I'm a light skin guy. It's, it's a light skin. I was just going to say, he's light skin. I'm this is like the This is like the first time I'm on set with Avery Johnson and um, and Chauncey Phillips and baby hair came up. I'm like, what's baby hair? That's so <laughs> now, now, is that difficult for you to have uh, those comparison <laughs> conversations as well? Or are you just using real time information? Yeah to speak on that matchup or can you say listen this guy's getting the best of this guy but this guy's better like how do you handle comparisons well so this is fascinating to me because i'm assuming evan because of um shot creation and the things devin booker can do that you're saying he's a better player than clay thompson because clay's never been asked to really okay i'm gonna man the pick and roll i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna be the shot creator i'm gonna be the guy setting up other guys um, and just, I want to go back at some point to, um, prior to you're down two one in the series. So just remind me of that just because Chris Chioza said something about you specifically that I want to talk to you okay. about, but I'll go back to this question. Um, is it difficult? Um, I, you know, it's a great question. I hate one, one of the conversations I hate. So, so now you're hearing people say, oh, 
um, you know, Steph is top whatever he is in the league. And I remember somebody asked me about the le- his legacy prior to the championship last year. And I'm like, le- like this guy's set. I don't know what you're talking about. He, Steph's place in the game is unique. It's special. I don't think he needed the fourth championship to, to elevate himself into a conversation of the all-time greats. I didn't accept it then. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do think it is um, exceedingly difficult to compare eras and um, that the moment I'm thinking of, and this is a little bit extreme in terms of eras, but JJ Reddick last year, when he, you know, sort of offhandedly uh, mentioned Bob Cousy and he would, or uh, I think it was, oh, oh, he's playing with a, (laughs) right, right, right. And so like, I'm not a believer in, in necessarily comparison. I get that that's a fan's perspective and job. I just never, I want to, I want to enjoy the people I'm covering right Mm -hmm. at that moment and accept what's special about them. I can see the comparisons. Sometimes I will say to a coach, Hey, is there somebody he reminds you of? Um, So, yeah, but I don't mind. And certainly I saw Evan's point almost immediately when he started talking about the difference between those two guys and D book. That dude's a bad man in my book. Clay, Clay got locks though. Let's not forget. Let's not forget. Oh, Clay. Come on now. Clay is Clay's a four-time champion. And Clay, how yeah, many times is... every day. It's like, how much... Yeah, it's true. <laughs> here we go. No. And then it, but and then but think seven. about... <laughs> here's where I put... Here's where I... Here's what, to me, I think of when I think of Clay. I think of Clay as game six Clay. When those championships are teetering or those series are teetering. Mm-hmm. And Steve Kerr once said about Kevin Durant, um, there's, there's a handful of guys who can do what he does. And that's the absolute truth. Mm. I would also say those people who are willing to step into those moments like Game Six Clay mm-hmm. are also uniquely special in their mm-hmm. own right. And uh, so, yeah. And plus, I'll leave it to all you smart basketball players to compare each other. <laughs> Chioza, I, I didn't want you to forget about. Uh, I'm glad. I'm glad. So just a very casual. I'm covering a preseason game and just waiting for media availability. Chris Chioza and I are chatting. And uh, yeah, I just said casually, you know, drop your, you know, enjoy your offseason. He's like, yes, I did. You know, in the aftermath of sort of being exposed to what I was exposed to. Um, with Golden State, it was a really incredible. And and uh, I don't know exactly how we got to the moment where you down two one and then trailing in the next next environment. And um, but he said in the two, when you went down two one, something along the lines of I I just had to look at Andre Iguodala and I knew we were going to be okay because Andre whatever it was I think what he said you said and Chris forgive me if I'm I'm not getting this verbatim but Basically, he said, we win three straight and here's why. And you were just so level. And the feeling he got from you and and Steph and and the veterans in that room was, we're fine. Mm -hmm. We are absolutely fine. And he said, you know, you're you're, uh, the people who haven't been champions or who maybe have won chip. We're looking around like, are we sure? But as soon as you said what you said. A temperature in the room, everything was fine. I just thought these are the moments that we don't see. Right, right. That that 
say who you are. So I'm just curious, do you remember sort of your comportment or demeanor or whatever in the aftermath? And did you do that? Did you do that specifically? Or you're just in the process of just watching what happened and saying, we are fine. I'm just curious, like, was it intentional that you're saying that in that moment? Well, I try to always be honest, you know, and if something doesn't feel right and I'm thinking, ah, this series ain't looking good for us. I'll try to figure something out just to make sure, like, listen, at the end of the day, just give it all you got. Make them earn it. Like, whoever's a champion should have to earn being a champion. But in, if it's moments I'm thinking, oh, I know we're going to win, I just got to figure out how to relay this message. It's never predetermined. Like, I never go into it like I'm going to give this speech. But I'm always referencing certain things in the game or certain things from film. Like, look, look at this. That is the, that's telling us a story. Like everyone talks about me getting on Wiggins. Like that didn't wake Wiggins up. Wiggins was already woke. Like Wiggins was on point. The entire, he was just, you know, you could argue he was the second, third best player in the entire series. And I was just trying to explain to Wiggins, like, listen, use this as a confidence booster. They're screening you every single time. Why? Because you're playing incredible defense. Think yeah. about that. You're so good on defense. Yeah. They're setting four screens on you per possession. If you get over four screens per possession, we're going to win the finals. That's how good you are for us. And mm. what happened? You know, he's getting over every screen. He's making every, every shot screen. tough. He's blocking yep. shots, you know, offensive rebound, getting the second opportunities, you know. Mm. And then I just knew, you know, like Otto Porter had an issue with his toe. And he was, you know, Otto was saying like, man, I don't know if I can go. I'm like, Otto, I just need like 40 more minutes from you. You know, Otto's playing, what, 20, 25 minutes a game? I was like, yo, I need 45 minutes for, from you, and I need you not to miss because he never misses in practice, you know? And it's, it's interesting when you see guys up close as opposed to his opponent, you learn so much more about them. And I joke with him, and I'm trying not to knock. I hope this doesn't take a knock on anyone else, but I always tell Otto, like, boy, they wasted seven years of your life in Washington because I ain't never seen a guy not miss – <laughs> but be talked about so bad. Like, we didn't know Otto was this good. Like, competing against Otto, you don't know how good he is because, you know, he's he's kind of hiding in the corner. You know, he takes a couple shots and he's got a big contract. So, you know, you, we talk about it all the time. The perception be can become the reality, which is sad. Yes. And that's the new NBA where the perception is the reality. So I always tell the young guys, don't let them paint you in a light that isn't a true uh, observation of your character. You know, and it's almost like you got to walk on eggshells, but it's just a part of the business. And it's just a, something you got to be able to adjust to. And we're asking 18 and 19 year olds to do this, which is we don't know who we were at 18, 19. So I think it was more or less being in that moment, knowing how to give a certain message to a certain group. And I think that's why experience plays a large role, you know, and, and I think Boston is going to be even more scary going forward because they were able to experience the finals and they lost. And they was like, OK, looking back. We could have did this, this, that differently. And now they're moving forward. Everybody's working on their craft. Everybody's working on the weaknesses. And, you know, they can they got a chance to put it together and try to come back and make another run at it. So that's just the beauty of having that experience. And we've had it before many a times. We've been down 2-1 many a times. You know, we've been down 3-1 to one of the best teams we've faced in all our runs, that OKC uh, team. And you, you That's learned, right. Right. Like people always forget, like that may be one of the best teams we played period, whether it was in the finals, any part of the playoffs, like, you know, it was 6'10", K it was 7'0", KD, it was 7'0", Adams, it was 7'0", Ibaka, then they had a 6'4", uh, Bulldog and Russ, and then, 
you know, uh, they had a defensive juggernaut in my man. Roberson. 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 Yeah. yeah. That he was, was great. He's six eight. Yeah. Like yeah. The shortest player is six yeah. four and everyone else is six yeah. eight taller and they're athletic and scary and they could switch everything. So you just learn a lot through your experiences and and you know, when you can get through adversity, um, you can pretty much get through everything. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, Evan, you want to wrap it on this? Yeah. So who's that one person that you think literally impacted your life the most that you think gave you uh, the best game? We had Steve Ballmer on here a few weeks ago, and he brought up, I believe, his, his teacher, his his math teacher. Yeah. Yes. No way. Yeah, really? Impressive. Oh, man. I don't know. I'll tell you the two, two people who impact me the most right now is my kids. Like. Um, yeah, they impacted me too. My pocket. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I uh, my son is um, he's hysterical. Like, I, I swear, there's a time I thought he wanted to be a stand-up comic, and I said, "Well, I've given you enough for your entire first act, my friend." <laughs> and he he does the best impersonations of me, and just kind of realizes he just makes me realize my absurdities, and he makes me laugh, which I probably don't do enough of. And then my daughter, she's just got this uh, intensity and strength to her um, that I really admire. And uh, so I'd say those two right now. Um, yeah, those two. Lovely, lovely. Well, we appreciate the time. Um, we thank you so much. Well, ah, we thank forever, you. We're forever grateful. And uh, I saw there's one meme of you out there. I think you had on maybe red heels or were they black? You were dribbling a rock. I, we want to see that more often. So whenever you can <laughs> get the ball in your hands, you had a, you had a tween between behind. Between the legs, behind the tween back. behind. Through it. Yeah, with, with the clipboard in hand, right? Yeah, it was smooth. Yeah. Bing, bing, bing. In, in high heels. This is what I'm saying, gentlemen. <laughs> my, my, my handle is my the best part of my game. And it's the only thing that hasn't abandoned me to this point. And E.T., when I see you in person... I got to know how you like retirement because we got to discuss. All right. All right. I got you. <laughs> and, Don't worry. And thank, thank you for having me. This is a lot of fun and I, I really appreciate it. Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Thank you.